you joining us online, welcome as well. Uh, Before we begin this morning's message, let's go to our Father in heaven in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the opportunity for us to gather once again to hear your word. We ask that you would help us to humble ourselves before you, that your spirit would do his work, that we would be convicted, that we would be edified, that we would be encouraged, refreshed, equipped, so that we can go out from here and do your good work, and that we would glorify you in all that we would do, Father. Father, help us not to be distracted this morning. Help us not to be sleepy. Help us to be awake, aware, and attentive to your voice. Father, we ask these things for your glory, by the power of the Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're at the end, but not the end of Judges, but the end of Samson's cycle, the end of his life. Samson is also the final judge in the book of Judges. What remains after Samson are our five chapters highlighting the depravity and idolatry of, of God's people. And if you think it can't get any worse than it already has, you should read ahead and prepare yourself um, for what is to come. Now, if you have not done so already, please open up to Judges 16. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles underneath the seats around you. We're going to inspect this text up close to gather what's going on and and why the author records these events for us. And in doing so, we'll see a picture of a man who has taken for granted the grace and blessing of God in his life. And because he did so, it cost him his life. The end of of Samson's life serves as a warning to us today, as well as a reminder of God's grace. Therefore, after exploring this passage, we'll consider what we can do to keep ourselves from taking for granted the grace of God and the gifts that he has bestowed upon us. Our text can be broken into three parts. Uh, The first part, verses 1 through 3, takes us to a, a brief encounter in Gaza, The second part, verses 4 through 22, takes us to the Valley of Sorek, where Samson falls for Delilah. And then the final portion, verses 23 through 31, brings us back to Gaza for the dramatic conclusion of Samson's life. So let us begin with the first part, verses 1 through 3 of Judges 16. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went in to her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. So here, Samson, he goes to Gaza, and that's about 40 miles southwest of his hometown, at least as the bird flies. He sleeps with a prostitute. The Philistines hear about it, and they wait all night. We're not told why they wait all night, but they're going to wait all night to ambush him in the morning. But Samson, he lays till midnight. So at midnight, he gets up, and he takes the, the door of the city gate along with his post, and he carries it uphill to Hebron. Now, now Hebron is 40 miles to the east. So he's taking the gate and its two posts, you know, probably on on its back, and just going uphill, right? This isn't downhill, this is uphill, so it's 40 miles, and it's uphill uh, to Hebron. So the question that we ought to be asking, and you're probably already asking, well, why are we reading about this? 
Why is this, why is this in here? Uh, and especially since it's so brief. It's highly efficient. There's a lot of information. There's a lot of explanation that is missing that's normally included. Also, there's no, no mention of God's spirit, right? When he takes up the gate, there's no mention of the spirit of Yahweh rushing upon him. Why does the author leave that out? Is the author trying to show that Samson was strong by himself? Well, we've talked about this, and, and that can't be it, right? Later on in the same chapter, the author is clear that the strength of Samson is connected to the presence of Yahweh, whether the author explicitly states it or not. But perhaps the author keeps it short for the sake of brevity. But if the author is so concerned for brevity, why would he include it at all? Well, I think it's more of a literary reason than a theological reason. Following the events of chapter 14 and 15, which focused um, at the start of Samson's judgeship and focused around the area of Timnah, uh, this event in Gaza allows for a transition of sorts to occur. It shows, one, how the reputation of Samson has grown. It's no longer uh, restricted to the area of Timnah in his hometown, but it has now gone all the way to the south to, to even Gaza. And it also sets the scene for what is to come at the end of chapter 16 in Gaza. By mentioning Samson tearing out the two gateposts here, it helps create tension at the end of the chapter when he reaches for the two pillars. After all, Samson has judged, or he does judge, Israel for 20 years. So surely his exploits were, were, were numerous and, and many, and most not included in the book of Judges. So, so the author had his share to, to pick from. So whatever events he picks from, there's a purpose behind it. And I think this particular account in Gaza is meant to set the stage for the end. So let's begin in uh, reading the second part. And we'll take the second part. It's much larger. We will take it slower. Uh, verses 4 and 5. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Samson falls in love with a woman named Delilah. We're not sure what the name means. Uh, it could possibly mean to flirt, or it could mean of the night. We're, we're not sure. It, it could be a meaning that's been lost to us, or it could be a pun um, intentionally created by the author. We're, we're not sure. So Samson falls for her in the Valley of Sorek. Now, the Valley of Sorek is, is 30 miles north of Gaza. So we've left Gaza, we've gone back north, and this is just west of Timna. So we're back, we're closer to Samson's um, area where he grew up in, just west of there. Uh, the Philistine lords, they, they, they come to Delilah and they say, hey, seduce him, find his secret. And then they offer 11 pieces of silver. And now pieces is not actually in the Hebrew. It's just 1,100 silver. And then so pieces is just uh, assumed there. And more than likely, these are 1,100 shekels of silver, since shekels was the common a way to do currency back then. And so if we're looking at 1,100 pieces of silver, um, and a shekel is 11 grams, and we have five lords. So when we talk about the lords of the Philistines, we're talking about the five, typically five lords. A lord of, of each of the five cities or the pentopolis of, of the Philistines. And the five key cities of the Philistines would be, and, and I was supposed to write this down, but I forgot, Gaza, Ashdod, Eshkelon, 
Oh, boy. Um, Dave, anybody? Help me out here. Ashad, there's this Ekron, Gath. There we go. That's the five. There. Gath, Ekron, Ashad, Ashkelon, Gaza. Thank you for the assist. Five cities, right? So there's five lords, 1,100 shekels each. That's 5,500 shekels of silver. That's 133 pounds, which you do all, all the math, roughly. That's kind of rounding down, if anything. 133 pounds, and that's three times the, the weight that Gideon, if we remember Gideon in Judges 8.26, all the gold that he accumulated, this is three times the weight of that. So this, is, this, this would make Delilah one of the wealthiest, if not the wealthiest person in the Philistine uh, nation, easily. So this is a lot of silver. So a lot of motivation for her to, to take risk and to get this secret, to, to do whatever she needs to do to get this secret from Samson. So let's read on and see if Delilah is motivated to do such a thing. Verses 6 through 9. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber. She said to him, to Samson, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. So, so clearly, Delilah, she's motivated. She's got this vast sum of money waiting for her. She just finds the secret out of Samson's strength. So she begins to ask Samson, and it'll take her four attempts to find the answer. And this is the first. And Samson, with the first answer, says, hey, I need seven fresh bowstrings. In other words, seven fresh tendons of an animal. A bowstring is a, a tendon of an animal. And, and the fact that it's fresh, it hasn't been dried out, which means it's still considered part of the corpse, which means it's still unclean. Samson's essentially telling her, me, he's thinking, right, he knows he's a Nazarite, as we're going to find out later. Give me, tie me something unclean, and it will weaken him, but it doesn't, right? It, 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 he snaps him as a thread. But what this shows is that Samson is once again willing to expose himself to something unclean, to the very thing that he's not supposed to come into contact with at all. But again, he doesn't care. He, he's arrogant about this calling that God has in his life. Now, for clarity, as we go through these um, situations, keep in mind, the Philistines are not actually coming upon Samson, right? He's not fighting them. They're not actually upon them. They're in an inner chamber. They're, they're hiding. They're waiting to see if what Delilah has done works. So Delilah is, is testing. She's not a fool. She knows that he, he could just be telling her lies. And so she's testing the validity of his answer by tricking him into thinking that the Philistines are upon him. But they're not. Not yet. So let's see the second time that Delilah questions in Samson's answer, verse 10 through 12. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. So this time we get new ropes, and, and remember from last chapter when Samson was 
handed off to uh, the, the Philistines from the men of Judah. Men of Judah bound him with new ropes. So clearly the reader's like, well, pff, that's not going to work. And Samson snaps him like a thread. All right, third time, verses 13, 14. Then Delilah said to Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with a web and fasten it tight with a pen, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head, wove them into a web, and she made them tight with the pen and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pen, the loom, and the web. So apparently Samson's hair was done where he had like seven locks. I mean, you can just imagine this. He's probably in his mid-30s at least at this point in his life. His hair has not been touched. So just imagine a 35, 38-year-old man whose hair has grown since birth, hasn't been touched, and he's got like seven locks of it. And and he tells tells her, put it in a web, so maybe like a, a man bun, I guess. Fasten it tight with a pen, but it doesn't work. Right, he's getting closer. He's talking about his hair now. So he's playing with fire at this point. So when she wakes him, he just pulls the pen and everything out, and they find out he once again lies to her. So three different answers. None of them are true. So let's read on and see how Delilah finally gets the secret out of Samson. Verses 15, 16. Delilah said to Samson, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. So Delilah pleads with him, appeals to the love that he supposedly has for her, reminds you've mocked me three times, yet you have not told me. And she pleads with him day after day. We're not told how many days, but it's, it's persistent, it's regular, it's continual to the point to where his soul was vexed to death just like his first woman of his life outside of his mother, the wife, of the, the Temanite woman that he, he married when she tried to get the answer to the riddle. She vexed him to death, and so does Delilah here. Verse 17, and Samson told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head. For I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Samson, he has the physical strength to carry a city gate 40 miles uphill, but no strength to resist a woman. He admits he's a Nazarite to God, and, and note he calls God here by his generic name, Elohim, instead of Yahweh, kind of emphasizing his impersonal relationship of who God is, but he's acknowledging that he knows the calling that God has in his life, which again, the author is pointing out, so for the sake of us, the reader and his audience is like, Samson knows, and yet he's continuing to live this life. He's continuing to do everything that he's not supposed to be doing. Tells her, my head is shaved, my strength will leave. Verse 18 When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. So she's confident, more so this time than the other times. So much so that the lords of Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. So they're ready. They got 133 pounds of silver ready to 
make her the richest woman probably. She made Samson sleep on her knees. And she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him and his strength left him. So uh, apparently Samson's a deep sleeper or or God divinely intervened. We're we're not told, but he's, he's asleep on her lap so much so that a man can come and shave off the hair of his head, all of it. So Samson now, he's in trouble, but he doesn't know it. Verse 20, Delilah said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And Samson awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that Yahweh had left him. The Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill and the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. So Samson is awakened by the same cry of Delilah, thinking, thinking he's still strong. Right? There's no worry in Samson's mind yet. He doesn't know that Yahweh has left him. And no, again, the author doesn't say he didn't know that he was bald. Right? He didn't know that Yahweh had left him. Again, the strength is with Yahweh, not with Samson himself. Imagine the anguish he must have felt in that moment, realizing he wasn't strong anymore. Like a young man waking up old one day, I slept wrong, my neck's bothering me. This is much worse than that. His entire life, Samson had, could do whatever he wanted. God's grace was with him, God's blessing was with him, and now in a moment of need, it's gone. He's helpless. He's never had a moment in his life where he's not in control of the situation. And so now he's helpless. The Philistines seize him. And and the way that the Philistines treat him here, this this is common treatment in the ancient Near East. For for societies to treat prisoners the way that they treat Samson, this isn't special treatment for for Samson. Uh, We might want to presume it is. But to gouge out the eyes of your enemy when you take them prisoner, that was, that was common. So he, he gets, he gets a, a rather common treatment here. Uh, we, we could say that there is some irony in the fact that his eyes are gouged out since it is by his eyes that he lived his life, right? The, the Timonite woman that he, he made his wife was right in his eyes. He, he was led astray by his lust, his, by his eyes for women. So they gouge out his eyes, bring him to Gaza, and he works the mill at the prison. But let us not miss the end of verse 22. And imagine this is the first time you're hearing this account. Imagine you never heard of Samson. His head's been shaved. He's been treated this way. But then you read at the end of verse 22, but the hair of his head began to grow again. There's hope for Israel's judge, a a, a shimmer of light from the little son of Israel. S-U-N, right? That's what Samson's name means. Son, little son. It's a little hope for this little son of Israel. So let's begin the final part, and we'll take this part bit by bit as well, verses 23-25. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy to our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. 
So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. So the Philistines, they're having a great festival to worship their god, Dagon. Right? Dagon is an agricultural deity. He, he's a god of agriculture. His name in the Hebrew as well as in the, Can- in the Canaanite language means grain. Uh, we, we actually have an inscription that ascribes him as the father of the Canaanite god Baal. And so the Philistines, they believe that it's not Yahweh, but it's Dagon that has handed Samson into their hands, the ravager of their country. So when their hearts are merry, both probably due to drunkenness, but as well as celebratory delight, they call for Samson as entertainment. And he stood between the pillars. So so think about this. This is your first time hearing it feel the tension here we started the chapter with samson right he's in gaza right now we started the chapter with him in gaza and he tore out the city gates and the two posts and carried them 40 miles then in verse 22 we're we're told his hair began to grow back and we don't know how long he's been in in prison uh, working the mill before this festival it's probably within a year probably within a few weeks if you think about it they're not going to hesitate to celebrate this So probably not too much hair has grown back. But we know his hair had begun to grow back. And so here at this festival of a pagan god, the god of the Philistines, the god of of Israel's oppressor, right? The very people that Samson's meant to deliver his people from. He's at this temple and he's placed between the pillars. So the questions, if you don't know how it ends, there are are many. You, You have to wonder, will Samson do anything? Can he do anything? Will Yahweh be with him? Is his hair long enough? Is it even about his hair? How will he get out of this situation? I mean, after all, this is a judge of Yahweh, right? We're in chapter 16. We've covered all the other judges and every other judge that God has called to deliver his people from their oppressors. They have lived. Every single one. Surely Samson's going to get out of this. How is he going to get out of this? How is he going to do it with with, with no eyes? What's going to happen? Now, before we go on, I do want to show you a picture of what this temple possibly looked like. Uh, There's a picture of a temple site that's been found at Tel Kassil in in Israel. This is an ancient Philistine temple. Um, It's quite possible to be very similar, if not identical, to what Samson stood in. So you'll note two pillars, if you can see it, in that yellow spot, two main pillars right in the center of the temple. So if the VIPs, like the Lord of the Philistines and, and whoever they invited, special guests, are under the roof in the covered portion, then you got 3,000 commoners, right, men and women, trying to see what's going on. They can't get in, so they're starting to climb on the roof so they can peer down and see Samson, the ravager of their, ravager of their people. So the whole structure is probably already unstable. Right? I, I, I don't think there's any permits, any OSHA, any regulations that they have to pass. So you got 3,000 men and women probably doing a lot of movement on that roof, trying to get in, right? Because they all can't see at once. So it's unstable. Thus collapsing these two pillars could cause the whole place to come down. And so you'd wonder, is, is Samson thinking this, hearing the commotion? So let's finish it. Verse 26. Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me fill the pillars on which the house rests. So he's very specific. He's seeking out the main pillars that I may lean against them. Now the house was 
full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to Yahweh and said, O Lord Yahweh, or, or Sovereign Yahweh, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all of his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtael in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. And that tomb, by the way, traditionally speaking, can be visited in Israel. There's a tomb dedicated to Samson um, and his father, clearly, uh, that you can visit. The, I don't know what the validity is behind it. It's, it's, tradi- it's by tradition, but it's there if you want to go look at it. I, I shared the Google map link in the pre-sermon email. Now, know how Samson, he calls on Yahweh in verse 28. He says, remember me, strengthen me just this once, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. He's still focused on himself. There's, there's, there's no cry of defense uh, uh, for Yahweh's name, not like David did before Goliath, right? David, David was trusting in Yahweh. He knew Yahweh would defend his name because this uncircumcised Philistine is blaspheming uh, the name of, of, of Yahweh. But Samson doesn't do any of that. By the same time, Samson just doesn't know any better. Right? Remember, judges. It's, it's a time where the people did not know Yahweh or, or his word in what he has done. But even in his blindness, both physical and spiritual blindness, Samson trusts Yahweh. Now, we don't get an explicit response to Samson's cry. We don't get a text saying that the spirit of Yahweh came upon Samson. We don't get any of that. However, the, the result of Samson's actions clearly indicates a divine intervention of strength. God was with Samson in those final moments. And Samson did what he was called to do. He began to deliver Israel from the Philistines. And in notes, we get that reminder. We, the, the cycle is, is closed again. You know, he had judged Israel 20 years. So if Samson judged Israel for 20 years, he probably died about the age of 40, maybe a little less. Uh, if he started, if the judgeship started in his late teens, 18, maybe 20, military age, This would place him around 40 years old. Now, what do you see here in this chapter? At the end of this cycle, the last cycle of cycles, the the last judge of judges, though, remember, Samuel, he's a judge, and he's actually the last judge of judges, but Samuel's not mentioned in the book of Judges. So Samson's the final judge of this book, and Samuel's very much alive at this time. We'll talk more about that um, when we get to Judges 17, we'll go over the, the timeline again. But Samson dies around 1055 um, B.C., roughly. Saul is anointed king about five years later, to kind of give you a, a picture of where we're at. So what's the picture that's painted before us of Samson? I, is this about lust? The dangers of lush, a little bit of lush, lust. The foolishness of it. 
It's certainly one of the details, but it's not the main point. Consider who Samson was. A man called by Yahweh to begin to deliver his people from the Philistines, the oppressors sent by God as judgment of their idolatry. And yet Samson was doing anything but that in his life. He was a mere thorn in their side, a very painful and big thorn. But not once did Samson rally Israel around him to conquer the Philistines. You would think that after tearing the city gate out of Gaza and carrying to Hebron, maybe that would have been it. Right? Look at, the, look at the city gate that I carry from 40 miles away. Look at this. Let's, let's go destroy that city that I just destroyed the gate by myself. But he doesn't. And nor does he seek to go on solo missions by himself, like guerrilla tactic style, to force the Philistines to live Israel alone. He, he's more than capable of doing that. All the events that we read about, he's doing it by himself. He, one time he even had 3,000 men of Judah with him. But they weren't involved in killing the thousands of Philistines that he slaughtered. It's all him. Rather, what we see is that Samson's quite comfortable with the uncircumcised Philistines. It's as if they were a, a toy to him to play with. He traveled as he pleased among their land, I mean, all the way to Gaza, and he seemed particularly drawn to their women. Never bothered to worry himself about whether things were clean or unclean, whether it's honey out of a corpse or fresh bowstrings, he doesn't care. Samson, what, Samson felt safe because God had blessed him greatly, and not only with great strength, but with grace as well, right? God was patient with Samson's arrogance and ignorance towards his calling. Samson enjoyed the company and the pleasures of the very thing that he was called to destroy, the very thing he was called to mortify. The life of Samson is the life of a person who has taken for granted the grace of God. And as such, he paid drastically for it. First with his eyes, and then with his life. So the question you need to ask yourself is this. Is this you? Are you guilty of what Samson was guilty of? Are you heading in that direction? Or have you already arrived in the Valley of Sorek at Delilah's house? What sin has seduced you to the point of comfort that you fall into a deep sleep upon its lap? What sins are you tolerating or ignoring that God has called you to mortify, to destroy, to flee from? Is it pride? You're a man of your word, so you can't go back on it, even if it means committing sin or being unfaithful. Your integrity, even if it leads to sin, means more to you than faithfulness. Or maybe, since you're unemployed, you'd rather stay unemployed rather than work at McDonald's or another job that you perhaps view as below yourself. Oh, I, I could never do that. Maybe it's the sin of vanity, a desire to be liked, loved by others, families, strangers alike. Thus, you compromise on your faithfulness. You prioritize the desires of the flesh rather than the desires of God. You live by the sight of your eyes and the eyes of others rather than the eyes of God. Are you struggling with lust? Right? It's everywhere, especially nowadays. Sex is no longer in the shadows and the alleyways of society. It, it's in the public square, and it's celebrated. It's exposed. There's no shame. It's easy to enjoy if you so desire. Many churches are jumping on that bandwagon. What is keeping you from living the holy life that Christ has called you to? Are you, like Samson, taking for granted the grace of God, presuming 
Well, the kindness of God, the fact that he, he hasn't struck me down yet, is affirmation. He hasn't disciplined me yet, so clearly he must approve of how I'm living. But you, you don't realize that the devil, he's prowling nearby. He's always prowling nearby. Just like the Philistines were in the inner chamber, waiting for you to give yourself over to that sin that you refuse to give up. Consider Paul's warning in Romans 2, verses 4 through 8. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness, God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, those who take for granted his grace and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Samson was with Delilah for quite some time. And even longer, he lived among the Philistines. How long have you been living with your sin? How long have you been exploiting the blessings of God in your life for your own satisfaction, for your own glory? How long have you welcomed and tolerated in your life that which God has deemed to be unholy and unfaithful? So what are you to do? How do you prevent this? How do you get out of this? How do you get out of Delilah's house? How do you live a life that does not take for granted the grace of God and does not spoil his blessings? Well, again, let's consider scripture. Let's consider what Samson did and what Samson didn't do. How did Samson live? By his fleshly senses, by his eyes. He allowed his eyes to, and his lust to dictate his actions. Desires and actions that were both ignorant and apathetic to the word of God the literal of it, that Samson knew. Therefore, you must be sure not to do the same. You must not allow your flesh to dictate your life, your ways. You must not be ignorant of his word. You must not certainly be apathetic to it, as if it's not relevant or sufficient for your life. Or, well, God's words is too complex to understand, so I'm just not even going to bother with it. Think of the memory verse that we had for this week that I, I posted on the website, Psalm 37, 4 through 5, delight yourself in Yahweh, right? Delight yourself, that, that, that means take joy, satisfaction in Yahweh. He is to be it. Nothing else ought to be your source of delightment. When you're lacking contentment, don't go to sin. Don't go to that thing that's feeding the hormones that you think is going to satisfy the flesh. Go to the one that's going to satisfy all things. It's Yahweh. Delight in him. And he will give you the desires of your heart. In other words, your desires are going to change from the fleshly appetite to a holy, spiritual, righteous appetite. Verse 5, commit your way to Yahweh. In other words, trust in him. Wait on him. Be patient. Right? Your sin, devil's telling you it's going to satisfy you. God's saying, I'm going to satisfy you. It's going to take longer because it lasts. It's something. It means something. The sin doesn't take longer because it's nothing. It's like frosting on a cake. It tastes sweet, but you're hungry, and you've poisoned your body of all that sugar. You, what a waste. What good did you do? Nothing. You're still hungry, and you probably want more frosting. You don't need it. You don't taste good. 
But God is pure. He's righteous. You go to it. He, it's going to take time. But there's an eternal reward for it. Trust in him. He will act. Or as Paul puts in Romans 8, 5, 6, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's what Samson did. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That's what Christ did when he was tempted in the wilderness. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. Samson is a perfect illustration of that. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And don't forget Paul's warning of 1 Corinthians 10, 12 through 14. Therefore, let anyone thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. If only Samson had the New Testament then. But we do. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. In other words, nobody's the exception. You're not unique. You're not special. No temptation that you're facing has not been faced by others. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. So whatever you're experiencing, God's with you. God knows it. I'll just keep on reading. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You can endure it because God's with you. It's not because within you you're able to endure it, but because Christ is with you, his spirit's with you, because he's with you, he's going to give you a way out. You just need to look for it. You just need to delight in him. You need to commit yourself to him. You need to trust in him. Your body's going to be yelling, no, this feels good. I don't want to leave it. And what's the big deal? And God's saying, oh, it's a big deal. You need to come this way. You need to trust me. You might not understand. You might not know why, but you need to trust in me. And Paul says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Flee idolatry. Flee sexual immorality. Flee sin. Flee from Delilah's house. Flee from the Philistines. Samson should have been like, oh, Philistines are upon me. I should just leave. I should just get out of here, especially after the second time, the third time. Clearly, this woman's up to something. But he doesn't. If you're not there to kill the sin, you need to flee the sin. To help you in this, consider why you live. Why have you been created? This is what Samson should have done. Samson should have called to mind, why am I here? There's a reason why I'm here. Samson was given a calling as a Nazarite. Right? He knew of his calling. He knew of his purpose. You too have been given a calling to be holy as he is holy. 1 Peter 1, 14, 16. As obedient children, Peter writes, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Right? Don't be conformed to passions of the flesh. But as he, it's God, who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You are to be different. You are to be holy, because he is holy. But let's be honest. Being holy, being set apart, while living in the land of the Philistines, living in the land of the unclean, living in the land of the uncircumcised heart, this isn't easy. You're going to be the odd one out. So how do you do it? Two ways. You have to have the right perspective, and you have to remember you're not alone. You need to remember who you are and why you are who you are. You must remember what God has done for you. 
what your Father in heaven has done by sending his Son to shed his blood for your sin so that you may be redeemed, so that you may be found no longer lost, no longer blind, no longer under condemnation, and no longer under the wrath of God. You need to remember what he has done to cause you to be free and alive in Christ and no longer enslaved to sin, no longer dead in your trespasses. And you need to remember that all of that is by his good grace. You did nothing for it, and it's only by his mercy that you are able to profess faith in Christ, which delivers you from your sin. So in other words, you need to keep the gospel ever before you. That's why we harp on it every week. You need it before you. It's why you should be in the word every day. You need to remember who Christ is and what Christ has done. You must consider, is Jesus who he is that he says he is? And, and is who he is and what he has accomplished, is, he, is, is it worth it? Because when you go to sin, what you're doing is you're trading him for a fleeting pleasure, a cheap trick. You, you, you want to be careful that you're not trading your salvation like Judas traded Christ for some cheap coin. Do you delight in him or do you not? Have you denied yourself, take up your cross and followed him or have you not? And this leads us to the second way because you can't live a holy life on your own. It's hard to keep the gospel in front of you daily, weekly on your own. You, you need others and not just anyone. Right? We're not just talking about any type of community. You need the church. You need the body of Christ. You need his beloved bride. It's how the Spirit works. You weren't called to a life of holy solitude. You were called to a life of holy communion. A, a communion, yes, with God, but a communion with God is experienced and expressed by communion with his holy saints, the brothers and sisters in Christ. You cannot have proper, faithful communion with God apart from communion with the saints. It is by the body that you remain faithful. Where the word of Christ dwells richly among the saints, the saints, Colossians 3, right, can correct one another, encourage one another, love one another, serve one another, pray for one another. You can't get that outside of the church. You get counterfeit forms of it, false forms. You can find all types of motivation, sure. You can find correction on other things. You can find some sort of false love. You can find a sense of community that doesn't last. You can even find thoughts and prayers that people will send to one another. But none of it's eternal. If it's apart from Christ, it won't last beyond this age. It's not going to help you in your day of, day of, of suffering. It's not going to help you when death comes. No matter how warm it makes you feel on the inside. But it feels so good. I don't trust your feelings. Don't trust your heart. Trust Christ. Trust his word. I'm sure Delilah made Samson feel real warm on the outside as well as outside. But just as the devil can appear as an angel of light to deceive, so can someone who is near and dear to you lead you to hell. Be very careful. You don't allow family members or the person who has that heart leads you into a sense of comfort to where you tolerate a sin that will lead you to hell. Don't do it. That's why you need the body. That's why you need the family that you've been adopted into. The right understanding, 
where, where am I? Yeah, the right under, sorry. So do not be arrogant, do not be ignorant, and do not think that you can be saved apart from the church. Think about this. What makes you think you can be saved apart from the very thing that Christ came to save? He came to save his bride. He came to save the church. He came to save Israel. The means of grace that are necessary for salvation, that is necessary for endurance to the end, those means of grace, they are found in the church, through the church, by the church, not apart from the church. The right understanding, application of God's word, is found in the body of Christ, not apart from it. The sacraments, they are rightly observed and administered in the context of the body, not apart from it. Church discipline needs a church in order to help restore a brother or sister lost in sin. The bride of Christ is what is saved at the end of days. Not a bunch of individuals, unrelated, unconnected to one another. Let me provide further clarification for your benefit. To be part of the church is to be part of the life of the church outside of Sunday. That means you, you come to potlucks, you come to fellowship meals, you join a life group, you attend table talk, you, you attend the women's gathering, the men's breakfast. Whatever the church does, you do. The best, ways to, best way to commit your ways to God is by committing yourself to the body of Christ in prayer and in service as God has blessed you. How can you say you love, you love Christ but you don't love his bride? And you love his bride by being with his bride. So if, if work if, if is keeping you from being with the church, it, it's not that you can't, you have to go to all these things. But if you're consistently missing all of these things outside of Sunday, you need to change it. It's not healthy. It's like having a personal trainer and working out with him once a week and you don't do anything else. You just think, well, I'm with my personal trainer once a week. How come I'm not losing weight? And think about it. Because you, you show up you're living a lie. You're pretending to be somebody that you're not. If you're a believer in Christ, you're going to be with the saints. You're going to want that. So you want to get, if your work is keeping you from that, you, you need to change that up. You need to do something. You need to think, how, how can I get to a, a position or a job that allows me to be with the body? Because one's eternal and the other one's not. And if you're struggling with that, let, let's talk so we can pray about it. We can wrestle with that. If you need rides to some of these events, I know some of you don't like driving at night, especially in the winter. If you need a ride, let us know. We'll hook you up. We'll get you a ride. We'll get you here. We're family. This is what family does. And, and if, when you make church first, you know what? You might lose family members over it. But you're always with the church. Yeah, because it, it matters. This is my eternal family. You can be part of it too. You can join us. Believe in Christ. Even if they don't believe in Christ, come hang out and, and learn about Christ. You want to spend time with me? Spend time with the ones that I love and love me. I want to show you what love is. Come. See what it looks like. See what we were created for. Because I know you're struggling with that. If your family members refuse to believe, let them go. Let them go. Keep them in prayer. Keep witnessing to them. But don't lose the church for the sake of a Philistine. 
Don't do it. You can say, well, I love, I'm loving my neighbor. You cannot love your neighbor if you're not loving God first and foremost. You love your neighbor best by showing them what it means to love God and what it means that, and what God's love has done for us. And when you make God's love for us a secondary thing, the body of Christ, eh, I don't, don't need it. It's not that good. I know I've been saved for this purpose, but no, it's, it's, you guys are more important. Your sin is more important. I'll tolerate it. I'll accept it. They're not, they're not gonna, that's not love. You're leading them astray. So don't lose the church for the sake of a Philistine. Or you may find yourself in the temple of Dagon when the wrath of God is poured out on an unbelieving world. And you might find yourself on the day of judgment. Why am I with these people? Because you've always been with these people. You are never with the sheep. You've always been with the goats. If you want to be found in Christ and his body, the church, you need to be with it. Jesus is the head of the church. He's head of the body, Colossians 1.18. Now, perhaps, though, you find yourself where Samson found himself at the end of her chapter, right? Maybe you've tolerated sin to the point and you have suffered greatly. The grief is great. The guilt blinds you. The power of sin, it has weakened you. Well, if that is you, or if you know you're near the edge of this reality, turn to Christ. Find deliverance in Christ. Find freedom in the church. Find comfort in his spirit, in his word, in his grace. No sin can keep you from that. Turn to him, run to him, flee to him. If you're in sin in the house of Delilah, don't accept it as, well, this is the way it is. This is who I am. Ignore her whispers. Ignore her outward beauty. Denounce the sin. Flee it. Run to Christ. Don't allow the lies of this world or the deceptions of the devil to lure you asleep upon the lap of Delilah as if you can't change. You yourself can't change, but you can be born again by the power of God, by his grace. Or, or, or that don't believe the lie that some sin, at least some of it anyway, especially like the little ones, it's okay. They're fine. After all, God is gracious. He's all about love. Don't fall for it. You must stay vigilant. You must stay awake. If you are to find sleep anywhere, let it be at the foot of the cross. Let it be at the empty tomb, wrapped in the truth of the word of Christ and the comfort of his spirit. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for your mercy, your grace, and your patience. Thank you that you you love us so much that not only have you revealed yourself to us, you speak the truth to us, you warn us, you, you, you call out our sin, you show us the way of life, the way of true light, the, the path out of the darkness, and, and, and it covers all of our sin, Father. That there's no sin that your Son has not covered except for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, Father. And we ask that you help us not to commit that sin by rejecting your Son, but that we would embrace your Son, that we would believe in him, that we would trust in him, that we would turn in him so that we may have new life and that we would no longer remain under your wrath. Father, we, we thank you that though we are unfaithful, you are ever faithful. 
that when we walk in sin, you discipline us, you correct us. We ask that your spirit would help us to discern the times, that your spirit would help us to discern these matters, that we would respond appropriately to the correction that you've given us in our lives, the warnings they've placed in, in our lives, and that we would flee to the cross, that we would run to your son, that we would go to the throne of grace in times of need. Father, help us to not only do this in our own lives, but help us to do this with one another. Help us to love one another enough to speak truth and love in one another's lives as gently as possible. May we pray with one another. May we walk patiently with one another. May we forbear with one another. And may we do so with those who who don't know you, Father. May, may, may you give our, our speech salt. May we have wisdom and discernment in, in how and when to, to share the gospel, to help us to be bold and, and zealous, but yet tempered and, and gentle and, and meek with your truth to those who reject it. May your spirit go, go before us and soften the hearts of, of those who refuse your name, who refuse to call upon it, and may you make them alive. May they be born again. And and may you use our witness, our faithfulness, that you work in and through us, uh, be instruments to to bring them home, to to call them into the flock, to, to, to make them part of the body, Father. Help us to be patient in this. Help us to be persistent in our praying. And Father, when sin is strong or, or guilt is, is overbearing, may you in, in your perfect timing and your perfect grace come in and just encourage us and may your spirit lift us up and may we not forget the work that your son has done for us. That it is finished and that once we have believed and looked upon him and once your spirit's in us and has sealed us, we're it. It's it. We're with you. We've been placed in the heavenlies next to your son. Help us to live that out faithfully and rightly, Father. And in that, Father, we ask that you'd bless uh, the table before us, the bread and the cup, that as we come to the table, we would be convicted of our sin, we would confess our sin, that we'd seek repentance, and we'd walk in the truth that it is finished, that we are forgiven, we are redeemed, we are holy brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we receive the elements that the taste of the gospel would linger upon our lips as we leave from here, Father, and that we would continue to be part of the body both in prayer, word, and in deed um, as we leave here so we can be powerful witnesses of your Son and what he has done for us, Father. Help us to live the faithful lives you call us to live until he returns. And Father, we ask all of this so that we would glorify you in all that we do. We ask this by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name and the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.